Welcome to Gleaming the Tube, the podcast where Kevin and Mike watch a film in which somebody rides a skateboard at some point. Finally, a podcast where people talk about movies. Hello, Michael. Hello, Kevin. So in this episode of Gleaming the Tube, we are discussing 1987's Hard Ticket to Hawaii. Oh my goodness. (laughs) Directed by Andy Sedaris, and it was uh, part of a series of movies that he called the Triple Bs, which stands for Bullets, Bombs, and Babes. Fair enough. Yeah, that 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 certainly applies to what we what we watched. And uh, this is a uh, this is kind of a, like a weird, interesting movie where I feel like movies like this only existed in the late 1980s. Was it late 1980s? Yeah, this is 1987. Oh, all right. Oh, oh yeah, I think I. In my head, I think it was early, but yeah, you're right. It does bear all the air marks of a of a late '80s film. They only existed in the late 1980s on Cinemax, right? Well, and that's that's the first thing that struck me when I was watching it. I was like, "Wow, if I had stumbled across this movie on Cinemax on like a night where my parents were out or something, it would have been the great." You know, I would have thought I had discovered the greatest motion picture in the history of motion pictures. I didn't have cable growing up, but uh, we both have a, a longtime friend named Liam, and I would sometimes hang out his, at his house on the weekends, and he did have cable. And I think we watched this movie at one point, like, like 11 o'clock at night on Showtime or Cinemax. That makes sense. I remember. So we, my father wouldn't spring for um, all the premium channels, so we had HBO. But every now and then, there would be like a weekend where you – it was like a trial weekend where they would – you know, you'd be able to get Cinemax for free. You know, they would front load all the top quality movies. But every now and then, if you were lucky, you, you know, you were 13 and you Cinemax would turn to Skinemax at the, like the hour of 11 o'clock and you would find a gem like that and boobs ahoy. <laughs> I, um, I timed it. It is one minute and 35 seconds into the film before the first woman takes her top off. You know, you got to have time to set the, you got to have time to set the tone and, 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 and let the narrative take over. And then, you know. Surprisingly restrained for Sedaris. Yeah, I um, thought so too. I was like, dude, I almost, I didn't even bother writing out a description of the plot because the plot to this movie makes very little sense. It's like that scene in The Big Lebowski where Maud is watching the porn film and, and says something like, the plot lines are ridiculous. Well, I, in, a, in a lot of ways, when I was watching it, I was like, wow, this movie is like above criticism. You know what I mean? It would be very easy to tear it apart, but but, but why? It's like, it, it struck me, and maybe, tell me if I'm correct about this, historically, it seemed as though it was a movie made by a group of friends who had some money and some stuff at their command. They were like, okay, we I know a guy who owns an Aerolite plane, so we're going to have a scene where there's an Aerolite plane, and I know a guy who can make a of convincing looking bazooka in his garage. So we're going to call that guy up. The story behind this film is actually much weirder than that. Andy Sedaris is someone who came up in television. He was like primarily known for directing sports. Uh, He has like an Emmy award for, for his sports direction. And he's also known as, and this is going to shock you, 
of the person who pioneered what came to be known as the honey shot, which is during a football game when they cut away from the football action to close-ups of cheerleaders or pretty girls in the stands. Ah, okay, sure. So that that tracks nicely. And he also did like he did all like the football choreography in Robert Altman's uh, motion picture Mash. Ah, okay. And I think after doing TV for a while, he suddenly shifted to making these bizarre action movies with playmates in Hawaii. He made like a dozen of these, which are all basically the same movie. I think Hard Ticket to Hawaii is the one with skateboarding in it, which is why we're talking about it. It might be like one of the crazier ones. I think this is the most well-known. Turner Classic Movies aired this movie at three in the morning once. Like, I love Turner Classic Movies. This is not generally what you expect. I love the idea of someone who, you know, maybe can't sleep and is like, oh, I'm going to check out Cary Grant and Irene Dunn and The Awful Truth, maybe, and turning it on and, and getting this. And getting hard ticket to Hawaii. Yeah. As I was watching it, I was like, wow, it really is like they, it's like they gave a group of 15 year old boys a million dollars and said, make a movie. And it's just, it's got everything. It's got razor frisbees and blow up dolls and skateboarding and, and high speed helicopter chases. It's fantastic. Enough former playmates to fill a dozen white snake videos. Yeah, man. It was, it was, it was a, a bevy of a very, blonde former playmates uh, who none, nobody seemed to know what anybody was actually doing in the film. I think one criticism that I actually did really enjoy because it really does play large on the screen is the inconsistent damage in which the bazooka can cause in one scene, it simply like blows a table off of its legs and, and kills a guy. And then another scene, it, it explodes an entire house <laughs> and it's it's the same bazooka, and it's that kind of attention to detail. I think is what made Hard Ticket to Hawaii such a such a successful film. Maybe the bazooka has different settings, much like a phaser. That's a good point. You always bring up those good points, Kevin. I wonder if there are bazooka pedants out there online who are very flustered by bazooka use in films. Who are like, this is this is not it at all. Well, I'm, I'm certain of it. I remember any time we would watch a movie that contained any kind of war scene with my dad, he was always very, you know, adamant to point out that the, the general stripe on his uh, uniform were incorrect or anything. So you've got to imagine that there was some bazooka enthusiast or a former infantry guy who was like, that bazooka is, is not militarily accurate. I'm sure the Razor Frisbee community had similar qualms. The Razor Frisbee did an enormous amount of damage. I was very impressed by how how effective the Razor Frisbee was in its use. My favorite thing about the Razor Frisbee, honestly, like the Razor Frisbee itself is like undeniably awesome. But after um, DEA agent Rowdy Abilene like throws the Razor Frisbee and decapitates the person, he does like a really great fist pump that reminded me of like the fist bump kid video did in the opening credits to his, to the cartoon series kid video. I was very enamored with the carnage of the razor video that I think I was still focused on that when the fist bump happened. The guy cut his hand and his face off. Well, even being able to swap out Frisbees, I'm going to make this guy think this is a normal Frisbee. I'm going to throw him a normal Frisbee. He's going to throw it back. And then I'm going to throw him the razor frisbee. He had one throw and he, let's face it, he nailed it. And I I really like the conceit that he had a daily appointment to throw a frisbee with like a local 
beach girl, even though he was also holding an M16. <laughs> nobody, nobody really questioned why he was bandying about a, a giant gun. It's good stuff. Rowdy with the frizz and his, uh, his buddy Jade, who is frequently for some reason making Bruce Lee noises while doing his Kung Fu moves, which has not aged well. Like you want, you want Kung Fu in a movie like this. Like I got the sense that that was them sort of just mess. They were supposed to be like messing around kind of uh, like almost like Bill Murray esque characters who were like wacky dudes who answered the call. <laughs> Bill Murray casts a wide shadow over like any character in the eighties, I think, because especially in these, these dopey made for cable things that take place on the beach. I think there's always like a, a guy who's named like schemer or, schmitty or what have you who's you know trying to put one over on people sometimes uh it cast a wide enough shadow that it was bill murray's brother himself who was <laughs> who was the guy doing bill murray oh i mean d- dude's got four brothers so it could be any any number of murray brothers up in there that just made me wonder to myself in real time if there's any skateboarding in the movie moving violations <laughs> because if there is that would be a movie we need to add to our list yeah, um, you know, there might be some in One Crazy Summer, too, which also has a, a Murray brother in it. Now, you know, I, I know we said, like, the story doesn't make any sense, but there are certain things where, like, the two main women, I couldn't, I could not get a beat on what their job was. Like, at, at one point, one of them is a DEA agent, and the other one is in the witness protection program, but they also fly a cargo plane, like, in Tales of the Gold Monkey, and... They're also bringing tourists to a secluded spot and there's a nightclub, but the woman who's in the witness protection program is trained to be a DEA agent. And at the end of the movie where they have all this drug money and the DEA agents are all like, well, we cannot take this money because we have to give it in because of the DEA agent code. And then the woman in witness protection says, well, I'm not. So let's buy a yacht. It all tracks perfectly, Kevin. I, 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 like I said, I feel like those are the kind of details maybe you're not looking for if you're if you're sitting down to watch the hard ticket to Hawaii. I was too busy looking in the lower left-hand corner of the screen for Joel and the bots. Yes. I also, before we get into the skateboarding bit, I want to bring up the snake. Oh, man. Chekhov snake, who shows up early in the film and then escapes, and you don't see him much beyond that, aside from some references to the fact that this snake uh, has been contaminated with toxins from cancer-infested rats, which is a mouthful, and um, then shows up later in the film, like, exploding out of the toilet to attack one of our heroes. In a film that has, like, kind of poor production values, I feel like the snake is the piece de resistance of terrible, terrible special effects. It's a puppet. And it reminded me a little bit of, of of Peter Jackson. What's the what's the movie with the zombie rat? Oh, um, Dead Alive. Dead Alive. The kind of the the way that they modeled the snake and made it all kind of wet and angry. I felt very much like I was watching a Peter Jackson film for that moment. I was wondering when it was going to come back, and came, and blasting out of the toilet was a nice surprise. You could theoretically make this movie without the snake, but why would you? I, I think the snake really held everything together, Kevin. I, I I think that that was the, I mean, I spent most of the film continuing watching A, to see the skateboarding and B, to see what was going to happen with that wacky snake. Speaking of the skateboarding. Man, oh man. <laughs> there's a scene 
where and this is this is probably the most famous scene in the movie and i think it, it's all over youtube and i think in like you know, people will isolate this scene as kind of like, like what? here's a wacky scene from a wacky movie where an assassin who's after Rowdy and Jade rides around on a skateboard first on his hands, like doing a handstand skateboard move. Then he comes back around with a gun in one hand and a blow-up doll in the other. And the heroes like run him over with their Jeep while he's flying through the air. He gets blown up with a rocket launcher. <laughs> when we first discussed doing this podcast, I looked up movies with skateboarding in it and Hard Ticket to Hawaii was one of the first things that came up. And I watched that scene and it didn't occur to me in watching that scene completely out of context. I assumed that the guy on the skateboard was a good guy who was like sort of trying to run a distraction against against the, the two guys in the Jeep. And I was very surprised to see that former professional skateboarder Russell Howell who was the guy skateboarding in that scene, was actually the bad guy and an assassin and had a strange convoluted way of, tr- of trying to assassinate these guys. I could, I was like, I couldn't understand what his motivation was other than to just be really obvious. I was like, I wasn't sure what he was trying to do there. It's like you don't bring a blow-up doll to a bazooka fight. That should be the tagline to the movie. You don't you don't do it. So uh interestingly enough, I was I was pretty I was pretty excited to find out when I was researching Russell Howell that he when I was a kid, one of the first <clears throat> sort of skateboarding media I saw was a movie starring Stacey Peralta called Freewheeling. That was kind of like a documentary about California skateboarding in like the late 70s. And I remembered that there was a there was a sort of one of the guys in the movie was so Russell Howell is from sort of the original first big wave of skateboarding in the like late sixties and early seventies. I remember in Freewheeling they they were skateboarding in like a big drainage ditch. And Russell Howell was this older guy who they brought to the to the drainage ditch and he like his enthusiasm for what these kids were doing skating in this drainage ditch was so palpable. Like you could, he was looked like a, like a little kid watching skateboarding for the first time. And it was so infectious to watch this guy. Like he had to kind of like change even his stance of the way he stood on a skateboard in order to be able to, to like, to kind of, do the moves that they were doing, but he adapted to it very quickly. It's just stood out in that movie as a guy who just like, almost like you watched him reignite his love for skateboarding. And he was, he was like a state national and world champion in 75 and 76. He was, he was, believe it or not, he was a gym teacher who uh, his, his students encouraged him to, to uh, enter a skateboarding contest and he won and went on to do really, really well. And uh, he also, a little side note about Russell Howell is that he isn't in the, in the Guinness World Book of Records. I don't know if his record has been broken at this point, but it's, it's interesting that it made it onto the screen because one of his records is the longest handstand on a skateboard which is uh, he apparently he was able to do a handstand for two full minutes. And I, I, I enjoyed reading that and thinking about the director being like, all right, Russell, what do you got? And he's like, well, I can do 163 consecutive spins on a skateboard and I can also do a really long handstand. And he was like, let's use it. And that's, that's what made it onto the screen. So apparently uh, the director did another movie that Russell Howland is, is in as a skateboard a skateboarder called Seven which might be worth <laughs> taking a look because it's also set in Hawaii and it also features the, the beautiful skateboarding of Russell Howell. He is also an inductee into the Skateboarding Hall of Fame 
and apparently a genuinely good guy. And I like the fact that when VHS hit and there was this huge demand for for rentals and for content on cable, that it opened up this weird secondary shadow Hollywood that made movies like this or like Meatballs 4. Just, you know, movies that are not good by any stretch of the imagination, but that I have a fondness for just, you know, it reminds me of being a nameless teenager and like, well, we got to rent something. Right, right. So, so now this, this is how we ended up watching Midnight Madness. You know, it's like, it's a movie and it's got kids in it. So I guess, uh, I, I guess we'll watch this movie. Well, they wouldn't have programmed it on television if it wasn't any good. It's true. That is true. I do think this movie falls into the so bad it's good category because it's never boring. Oh, absolutely. I was I was riveted to the damn thing the whole time. I was like, what's going to happen next? But I was laughing thinking about how one of the things that we said about Police Academy 4 was that like, you know, there's it certainly has a ton of stuff happen in it. And I was, as we were watching this, I was like, wow, it's it's like Police Academy 4 times a thousand. There's every recreational vehicle you can imagine is in this movie and it's got sex and violence and cancer ridden zombie snakes and and bazookas and skateboarding i mean it really is a a tour de force i dug this movie i i wouldn't i wouldn't recommend it to someone who wants something that makes sense or is good but i think if you want to like kind of be slack-jawed at the sheer audacity of how stupid and over the top something can be. I like, I would recommend this. I think the sheer audacity is the, is the perfect term to use. You're watching it thinking, holy shit. Like they made this movie. I don't, I'm not saying I liked it. Ironically, I liked it because it just, I couldn't believe that it exists. Like how the fuck does a movie like this get made? And I think you're, I think you're right. In in that, in that, in that time where it was just like content, churn it out that's how you get that's how you make that movie i don't know if this is you know a classic of skateboarding movies there's not a lot of skateboarding in it, but like i said i was really really drawn to the idea that it's this just this guy who like was sort of from the first wave of popularity in skateboarding who like it by 1987 was like still still mucking in there and do you know like that that's what i thought was kind of awesome yeah, and I think if you're if you're a skateboarder and you're in this movie doing that, like getting blown up by a bazooka with a blow up doll, I can only imagine that in the skateboarding community, you can dine out on that for decades. Oh yeah, I thought it was interesting because I remembered him from Freewheeling and was absolutely delighted that that was the same guy. I thought that was fantastic. Well, it is great to be back this week. I am thrilled to be back as well, Kevin. So next up, we're thinking mid-90s? Yeah, I think mid-90s would be a really good uh, follow-up to that. <laughs> that way we can find all the thematic connections. Yes, between the two films. I'm, I'm looking forward to, to drawing a, a line between those two, uh, those two experiences. Thank you for listening. Our website is gleamingthetube.net. We're on Facebook at Gleaming the Tube, Twitter and Instagram at Gleam the Tube, and our email is gleamingpod at gmail.com. Production assistance by Liam Gray. Music by Kissing Contest. Skateboarding is not a crime. Skateboarding is not a crime.